All right, we uh, press on in our uh, study of church history. Starting to get so high in the numbers, I can't remember which one's which anymore. Somewhere around 29 or 28, 29, somewhere in that area. Um, got a title? Yeah, church history. Um, this would be 29. This is 29? Okay, all right. So we had uh, spent a fair amount of time looking at uh, the doctrine of God that gives us a background uh, to understand the Aryan conflict, a conflict that technically is resolved in a matter of years, but really hasn't been even to this day. Uh, we will discover in church history, for example, that when uh, Alaric the Visigoth sacks Rome in the 5th century, uh, that he is an Arian, that the Arians sent uh, missionaries uh, out beyond the borders of the Roman Empire, and hence many of the um, nations uh, we would call the barbarians, which just simply means someone who didn't speak either Greek or Latin, but the uh, uh, groups that would eventually uh, caused the Roman Empire to crumble in the West, uh, were primarily uh, Aryan in their uh, orientation. Aryan has simply come to mean uh, one who believes in subordination, uh, one who denies the full deity of Christ. There are obviously different ways of denying the full deity of Christ. Um, you can uh, do like Jehovah's Witnesses do and have him as the highest exalted creature, um, even uh, an angelic creature, Michael the Archangel, specifically for uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, um, or just a man. Uh, this group that I'll be debating in a few weeks uh, up in uh, South Dakota, uh, the uh, Iglesia de Cristo out of the Philippines, uh, he's, he's just a man. He's not an angelic creature or at least that's what we gather. They have a book they teach from, but they won't let anybody see it. <laughs> uh, the, the sure sign of a cult when you've got the, the, the secret book, but no one's, no one's allowed to actually read it except the ministers. Um, so there's, there's different ways of subordinating him, different levels you can put him on. Uh, but the thing to always remember is there is a vast gulf between the uncreated and the created. And no matter how exalted you are over on this side, you're on the south rim of the Grand Canyon, uncreated on the north rim of the Grand Canyon, and uh, uh, you can't jump between the two. And so that's always a test to use in your mind as to what someone believes. Now, we noted a number of weeks ago that, and this is, this is, a good, this is one example, you'll have many in history, where someone will lay a theological egg uh, that will not hatch uh, for quite some time. And you can learn something from seeing where someone may have, in some sense, compromised, and then how that compromise leads to problems later on. But you have to be very careful you can't uh, judge someone for what someone does their teaching later on when they themselves didn't do that. So Augustine, as we're going to see, 
is going to give in to pressure to, in, in allowing secular authority to be used in uh, enforcing theological norms in North Africa against a group called the Donatists. That is a incredibly important stepping stone in the eventual development of what becomes known to us as the Spanish Inquisition, where you have people on racks being tortured until they profess the true, the true faith. Um, was that Augustine's intention? No. Was it a step toward that? It was. How do you judge him on the basis of the use of his teaching at a later point in time? Well, here, remember, we have origin. Now, there's plenty of reasons uh, to uh, condemn origin uh, for his teachings. We went through them. We didn't go, barely touch the surface, but he was... You'll never hear a Roman Catholic referring to him as Saint Origen uh, because he's recognized as, as being unorthodox. And, um, of course, you know, things are changing in, in Rome. Who knows who might be sainted in the future. But anyway, uh, historically, there's recognition that he held all sorts of unorthodox views. Well, you may recall that one of the things we noted about Origen in passing is that when he would speak of God the Father, he would speak of Ha, Theos, God with the definite article. But when he'd speak of Jesus, he referred to him as God, but primarily just as Theos without a definite article. Now, just so you know, there are many, 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 many times in the New Testament where God the Father is referred to as the Ostown article. So when Jehovah's Witnesses come up to you and John 1, 1, God doesn't have the article and God the if they, uh, in their own New World translation, when it comes to translating the word God without an article, 94% of the time they translate it as God with a capital G because it wouldn't make any sense. Just a few verses later, there is a man sent from God whose name was John. God there doesn't have an article. So if there was a rule that said if it has the article, it's the, and if it doesn't have, it's a, then they should render that section, John, there is a man sent from a God named John. Uh, they don't do that because it doesn't make any sense. And uh, the Greek article, which we would identify as the, or the indefinite article, an or a, um, the, the, the Greek article is, is probably the least like uh, Latin or English in its utilization. And in fact, to be honest with you, there are some times in the New Testament where the article appears and... We, we just, we don't know why. Uh, there's references, for example, sometimes it'll occur with a name, and then other times without a name. And people who have spent thousands of hours studying articles, or the lack of articles, Dan Wallace, Dallas Seminary, you know, a thousand hours studying the lack of the article, and then he did his doctoral dissertation on the presence of the article. So... He's, he's, he's spent half his life studying articles and still has to say, 
There are certain places where the Joseph, the Mary, Joseph, Mary, we don't know. And uh, so when, when someone comes along and says, aha, see, see, it's, it's a God. Well, but when someone normatively as origin um, makes this distinction, they are trying to communicate something. They are trying to put something forward, exactly what, it's hard to say. Um, so origin laid this egg, and remember, though there, there are two major, ah, a little quiz here. Let's see how many of you are awake at this time of the morning. Yeah. <laughs> I just threw it out there. I just, I just threw it out there. Just. Okay, so evidently not. All right. right answer, wrong question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we get to the Reformation, um, you're still going to be saying 325 ADS. <laughs> We're 1,200 years past that now. Uh, that's, that's, yeah. But I'm glad you remember that. Uh, you're going to. How many years yeah. in the future? It's, it's right there. Good. Very good. Um, <laughs> little quiz to see if you all are awake. Um, and I, this would, I did not emphasize this. So this would only be for the weirdos uh, who take really good notes and then remember the notes that they, that they took, uh, which is strange. But there were two major places where Origen ministered. And one of them is the one he's most famous for, and it's the most relevant here. So where does he start? He's the head of what school? Alexandria. Alexandria. Where do you go from there? Caesarea. Caesarea. Exactly. Very good. Very good. The, uh, the PhD in history. Figure that one out. All right. Um, so uh, Alexandria and Caesarea. For some reason, the Caesarea part just sort of gets lost to history. But he's primarily associated with the Alexandrian school. And that's, of course, he was also most influenced by the Alexandrian school. And where does the Arian controversy find its origin but Alexandria? With, well, with, with Arius. Arius is a presbyter. Um, and, of course, by this time, what you've had happen... Uh, and we talked about this before, but, but, but at, by this time, what, well, this is interesting for those of you who uh, <clears throat> attend the opening uh, session um, in the other room before we get started. won't mention anybody who doesn't, but anyway, um, we just read a section in the uh, Baptist Confession of Faith about the offices of the church. And we had uh, bishops and deacons... And that's in, and that's in the and that's in the good one. Maybe they got swapped. See, see how that green one works. We had. Mullery oh. was a bit of switcheroo. <laughs> April Fool. <laughs> that's what happened. Yeah, yeah, probably, probably. So we had bishops. And uh, according to the Confession of Faith, you have bishops and deacons. Bishops slash elders and deacons. Well, by this point in church history, you've had uh, a division of what was in the original uh, situation to where now you have bishops, archbishops, 
things like that. And then you have presbyters. And eventually, presbyters are going to be split off, and this is going to become the origin of priests. Now, the term has nothing to do with priests, uh, as far as the New Testament is concerned at all. So, but, so what you have in, in Alexandria at this point is you have Bishop Alexander of Alexandria, um, and one of, so he, here's Alexander up here. And then one of his presbyters is a guy named Arius. Okay? So uh, Arius um, was a, according to history, was a, uh, a good-looking fellow. He was physically attractive. He was popular with the people. He was a good speaker. And he was a good singer and would actually use music uh, to help popularize his teachings. Now, automatically, automatically you're, you're sitting there thinking, uh, well, Alexander probably viewed him as a rival, an upstart at that point. And maybe that has everything to do with this. Uh, not, not really. Uh, may have been relevant. But uh, that's not really what, what the issue was. Um, what happened is uh, Arius, in his teaching, utilized a particular phrase. And the phrase was, uh, there was a time when the sun was not. There was a time when the sun was not. Um, in other words, the sun is a created being. Now, he, he doesn't deny the personality of the sun. He's willing to call him the os. Uh, he is an exalted creature, but he is a creature. And there was a time when the father was not the father because there was no son. Uh, so there was a, a period in time uh, when the sun, before the sun was actually created. So the sun is an exalted but created uh, being. And uh, so this causes a controversy to erupt between Alexander and Arius. Arius uh, Alexander responds by preaching uh, a message on the eternal generation of the Son, and that is that the relationship uh, between Father and Son is an eternal relationship, uh, that uh, the Father, by nature, is always generating the Son, uh, that this did not take place in time. Uh, there was never a time when this relationship has not been. It's a natural relationship that exists between Father and the Son. Now, some of you might be uh, right now going, hmm, this is interesting because there has been a controversy in our day uh, starting about a year ago now. Uh, well, it's not when it started, but uh, became popular in culture and in blogs and on the internet, so on and so forth. Uh, a controversy over this very, very, very issue. Issues regarding to what, what does it mean when we confess the eternal generation of the Son and 
and uh, is the son eternally functionally subordinate to the father um, we have a well-known theologian here in the valley that, that teaches EFS at Phoenix Seminary uh, and uh, he and uh, another were targeted by well-known other people uh, saying that this is this is well in terms of heresy and Arianism and things like that started flying around and it it got a little little crazy and it's still a little crazy as far as that goes but anyway uh, so it, these are issues that aren't just for for the fourth century so um, Alexander preaches a sermon and of course this then uh, results in a uh, conflict and a division and people start lining up on each side and uh, it was said for uh, by some that for many decades in the streets of Alexandria or Caesarea uh, that if you walk down the streets buying a bread or fish the vast majority of the people were arguing uh, over this very issue, uh, that this was the issue of the day. It wasn't just theologians. Uh, it was uh, empire-wide, and it was uh, throughout all of, uh, all of culture, especially, obviously, in uh, places like uh, Egypt and, uh, and things like that. So uh, <coughs> the preaching of Alexander did not result in uh, the non-preaching uh, and teaching of Arius. It just only made the division worse. So Alexander called a local council in 321 AD and had Arius condemned. And so Arius simply left and went to Palestine and Nicomedia. He wrote a book called The Banquet, in which he promulgated his views, which is normally what you do when you get kicked out of one place, write a book. Uh, Alexander wrote letters to fellow bishops warning them about the Exucontians. Exucontians. Uh, what is Exucontian? Well, it goes back to a Greek phrase meaning out of nothing. And it was the first term used of the Arians saying that the sun was made out of nothing. Um, and so Alexander wrote letters to his fellow bishops warning them uh, about this individual and uh, representing his teachings to them. And uh, this just spread the controversy outside of uh, Alexandria around uh, the Roman Empire. By 325, yes, we are there, folks. By 325, the dispute becomes so serious that it comes to the attention, at least in 325, maybe before then, of Constantine. Now, Constantine, of course, uh, was the emperor of Rome. And the story of Constantine uh, is a fascinating one. We mentioned it briefly at the uh, end of our, well, sort of toward the end of our discussion on persecution, uh, specifically that Constantine, you may recall the Roman Empire had been divided up between East and West. Eventually it was divided up into thirds. Uh, this was partly because of the diminishing power of the, the city of Rome itself. And so it was easier to have 
local individuals ruling things, and then you know it took take a lot of time to communicate and stuff like that uh, from a central location. And uh, but of course, all that ended up doing is meaning you'd end up with these sub rulers, these co emperors, fighting with each other eventually. And uh, Constantine had centralized power in himself by invading Rome. He had done something you weren't supposed to do, and that was uh, uh, entering into Rome itself. He uh, attacked Rome. You're not, the legions are never supposed to go into Rome. Um, but Constantine brought his, his armies uh, against Rome. Um, his rival, Maxentius, for some reason, and uh, later generations would view this as the providence of God, uh, Maxentius was pretty safe in Rome. Uh, the Tiber River formed a natural uh, barrier. Uh, it was difficult to cross any of the bridges, uh, if you know how that works militarily. A small force can keep off a much larger force if you're, if you're being funneled into a small little area. And uh, for some reason, Maxentius decides to come out of Rome to fight Constantine. Uh, this is disastrous. He loses. But the story and how much of this we can actually verify is muddled by the annals of history. But uh, the story is that the night before the battle, uh, Constantine has a dream in which he has a vision of a cross. And he is told, in this sign, conquer. And it is said that he had his soldiers uh, paint crosses on their shields. That's probably a later embellishment. But there was some kind of experience that Constantine has that causes him to interpret his victory as a sign of favor from the Christian God. And so, though there is again controversy even over, uh, evidently, uh, Constantine is not baptized until his deathbed because there was a popular form of belief that Baptism forgave all previous sins, but the rigorists believed that was it. There was no forgiveness of sins after that, so you tried to hold it off as long as you could, so you had the best shot of uh, coming to death in a sinless state. Um, which is a little weird, because he's attending services, he's involved in the church, and that'd be sort of difficult to do if you weren't baptized, but anyways, there's, especially with Constantine, there's because of what happens at the Council of Nicaea and afterwards, there's a, it's really, really hard to separate the myth and the legend uh, from, from the reality. Tremendous amount of argumentation. Did he do this just simply for political means? Uh, was this, you know, he does eventually, his sons become full-blown Arians. He seemed to start leaning that direction himself. Was it all political expediency? Was it sort of, you know, which way is the political wind blowing, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, one of our primary sources for early church historical information is the first church history ever written by Eusebius. Uh, there's a couple Eusebi, Eusebii, I guess it's plural. Uh, there are a couple Eusebiuses, uh, Eusebius Nicomedia and Eusebius of Caesarea. Eusebius of Caesarea is the one who writes this uh, 
uh, major church history, uh, which is extremely valuable, though obviously you would not expect him to be utilizing the same standards of uh, historical inquiry and sources that are uh, utilized today, and therefore there are clearly myths and legends that Eusebius takes as uh, gospel truth, and uh, a lot of modern church historical stuff is trying to sift through what has been accepted from Eusebius as just gospel truth for a long, long time and realize mm, might not really be gospel truth. And so uh, Eusebius tells us things about uh, Constantine and given that there was this political back and forth after the Council of Nicaea, how much of it was trying to curry political favor, favor and all the rest of that stuff, it's, it's, difficult, it's difficult to say. But the point is that Constantine is the first Christian emperor, and it's common for people to think that, as a result, Rome converted to Christianity in 325 or 313 or something around that time period. Um, that's just simply not true. Theodosius in 381, I believe, was the year, 383-81, is the, is the first emperor to say the empire itself is Christian. But once the emperor converts, and there are going to be pagan emperors after Constantine that are going to try to bring things back, go the other, other direction. Julian the Apostate comes to mind. Um, but uh, once the emperor becomes a Christian, then persecution ends, and then there are people, obviously, uh, if you want to be in favor with the emperor, then maybe you should be a Christian too. And you and I both know this is not how Christianity is supposed to be spread. Um, obviously, if you've been a part of a church that's been under persecution empire-wide for 50, 60 years, and all of a sudden the emperor becomes one of you, uh, you're going to look at this as a really cool thing. This is great. This is wonderful. Uh, it doesn't take too long for serious-minded people in the church to start looking around going, you know... Um, this isn't necessarily working to our advantage. Um, they, they can start seeing fundamental changes in the church. And this really is a period of time, and we'll get into this more later on, where you really do have the origins of sacralism. And that is the, uh, the state church. And sacralism will be, was certainly not something that the, the Christians in the year 300 would worry about. Um, but by 325, it's, uh, you know, the Council of Nicaea is a huge step this direction. It's a massive step. It, that's, that's one of the reasons you've got to have that date, because not only is it theologically significant, in regards to the doctrine of the Trinity and the deity of Christ and all the rest of that stuff. But there aren't too many other events in church history with as many ramifications down the road as that particular event. And it is interesting to note, probably nobody who attended that council could have ever predicted what a lot of those ramifications would be. Um, but it is the biggest step no one could see what it was going to result in. No one could see 
how seven, eight hundred years later, the Holy Roman Emperor uh, would be left shivering in the snow outside the, the gates of the Papal Palace uh, seeking the, the Pope's um, approval and forgiveness uh, for something. Um, you just, there's too many other things that had yet to develop to even be able to begin to see how that was going to work. But in hindsight, we can see just how important this was. And it gives rise to all the massive amount of discussion we're going to have in regards to um, sacralism all the way up through the Reformation. The, the first generation and second generation reformers uh, were to a man sacralists. Uh, they couldn't even imagine what it would be to have uh, a, a free church separate from the government. And of course, many people today would say they laid the, the egg that then hatched into secularism, which has now turned to, to eat, uh, eat Christianity up, etc., uh, etc. Et so all sorts of these uh, discussions show how intertwined all the threads of, of history are. Um, and how uh, politics and culture and everything else have, have a tremendous amount of uh, relationship to one another. So Constantine hears uh, about this division and uh, questions remain as to exactly what his relationship to the church was, the depth of his commitment, if there was one, the level of the knowledge that he had. Certainly when people say that he's the one that came up with the solution and forced it upon the council, that is absurd. Uh, unfortunately, that's also what you'll see a lot on YouTube, especially, um, which is just a wonderful source of all things theological. Um, but it seems that what he saw and what he was concerned about is he has now brought about this consolidation of his power, but this, he sees Christianity as a means of helping to hold things together. And if it starts to break apart, then that's going to have political ramifications as well. And so uh, he fears schism. And so he called a general council of bishops at Ankyra in Turkey, modern-day Turkey, and then changed the location to Nicaea. And here's the important part. He paid the way of the bishops to and from the council and paid for their lodging while attending the council in Nicaea. So there had been councils before, but they had been councils called by the church, run by the church, focused solely upon church issues. This is a huge change to have the emperor of the Roman Empire not only calling a council, but then putting everybody up, paying for their travel to and from, and nothing, th th this was a massive change. Just a, it's a paradigm shift, huge shift, huge change taking place at this point in time. Now. What's interesting is this is certainly not the largest council uh, that had ever been held or even would be held. There are a number of councils that were held after Nicaea, in the decades after Nicaea, that condemned Nicaea, that had more bishops. 
uh, tradition says there were 318 bishops at the Council of Nicaea. Um, do we know? Uh, we, no, we don't know. But that's what tradition says. There were 318 bishops in attendance, which would be about, we estimate, about one-sixth. So one out of every six bishops in the world, that's, that's a lot. Um, however, what's interesting, what's really interesting, is this was an Eastern Council. There were only six or seven representatives from the West. The vast majority came from the East. So history loves to change names and, you know, it's sort of like what we're looking at now with uh, October 31st coming up, 1517. Well, was that really the beginning of the Reformation? Well, we, we call it that, but, you know, uh, was it really? You, know, you, can, you can point to things earlier and later and so on and so forth. The term ecumenical, of course in our day, for us anyways, has somewhat of a negative spin to it. Uh, it's the idea of uh, compromise, uh, laying aside your principles just for the sake of getting along, blah, blah, blah. Um, Later generations, late, much later, centuries later, a theory would develop that identifies certain councils as ecumenical councils. It literally means representing the world. And so an ecumenical council, by later definition, there wasn't, there wasn't anyone walking around the council of Nicaea going, ah, oh, this is wonderful, the first ecumenical council. Uh, that, that, again, is, is uh, anachronism. Uh, but later generations, much later, made it later centuries, would identify, identify the Council of Nicaea as the first ecumenical council. And most of the time, what you'll hear today is that all branches of Christianity except the first seven ecumenical councils. Now that, every time I hear someone say that, I just sort of chuckle. Because, especially when Protestants try to say, oh yeah, it's just, just I, I accept the first seven ecumenical councils. I go, you, Second Nicaea, you really accept Second Nicaea, which argued for the appropriate use of images on, some, on the basis of some of the silliest, most inane biblical argumentation ever put into writing? I, I, I really don't think you do. And even the Council of Nicaea uh, produced a number, and, and this sort of is where the, the, the tradition started. Not only did they produce the creed, which I think the Nicene Creed's probably in the hymnal someplace, probably after the Apostles' Creed, maybe? I don't think it's in this hymnal. Really? Oh, that's interesting. Um, produces the Nicene Creed, and... and the version that you'll find in most resources today is actually from, it's called the Nicene Constantinopolian Creed. It's from the Council of Constantinople in 381. So it's a little bit expanded from what came out in 325. 
But normally when people are saying they accept the first seven ecumenical councils, they're saying we accept the creedal statements and creedal decisions made by them. But each of these councils not only produced creeds, they also produced canons and decrees. And uh, the Council of Nicaea did this, or started the tradition. And so, for example, the sixth canon of the Council of Nicaea uh, talks about the major apostolic churches. So Rome has authority in her area, Antioch in her area, Alexandria in her area, Constantinople, etc., etc. And so it had to do with church offices and things like that. And I don't know any Protestant anywhere that would accept everything that even the first ecumenical council said in its, in its canons and decrees. So I, I, when, I, when I hear people rather jauntily saying, yes, I accept the first second, I'm sort of like, have you read anything that they actually said? Because I really don't, really don't think you know what's going on there. So, uh, but this is historically the first ecumenical council. And uh, so from Rome's perspective today, ecumenical councils have binding authority. However, in much, much later development, much later development, nobody at the Council of Nicaea dreamed of this. Bishop of Rome didn't come to the Council of Nicaea. He sent two representatives. Uh, he didn't come. In much later development, which has now become what you'll hear from your Roman Catholic friends, any ecumenical council only has the authority that it has because the pope approves of its final statements. So from their perspective, an ecumenical council is extremely important, but it's still subservient to the ultimate authority of the papacy. Uh, again, no one at the Council of Nicaea dreamed of such a thing. Uh, absolutely not a shred of evidence that, that even the Roman legates, the, the Roman representatives that came from the Bishop of Rome had the idea that this whole council was dependent upon them and their approval. No. That is a much later development, uh, and it's read back. All you got to do is turn, tune to EWTN radio, and um, I'll bet you dollars donuts within uh, uh, 48 hours, if you listen, you'll find somebody saying exactly what I'm saying right now. Well, well those ecumenical councils, very important, but their ultimate authority is based upon approval by the Pope and so on and so forth. You, you'll, you'll hear it. It's, it's, just, it's just the way things are. But as I said, uh, no one at that council believed what modern Roman Catholicism teaches, not only on that subject, but on so many other subjects um, as, as well. So you get 318. Um, the Bishop of Rome had nothing to do with calling the council. He did not rule over the council. He didn't attend. He sent Victor and Vincentius. Victor and Vincentius, those were her represent, his representatives. Her, <laughs> um, well, maybe he self-identified. Ah, never mind. Um, uh, in his place. And the council ran from the 14th of June to the 25th of July. So uh, about a month, uh, month and a third or so. Yeah, around there. Uh, 
14th of June to the 20th of July of 325. Now, you don't have to remember the exact dates other than the year. But hey, if you want to be really cool, then you can really impress your friends by letting them know that you know. And in fact, you know, maybe on June 14th, we can have a special Council of Nicaea steak fry or something. You know, that'd be sort of... A reenactment. Who gets to be Constantine? <laughs> According to tradition, he showed up in a golden robe. I got one. <laughs> I was afraid. I was. I was afraid you were going to say that. Yeah. Not. 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 Not a golden. No. Not a golden jersey for Captain Kirk. Oh, uh, never no. Mind. No. A full flowing. And if you have one of those, the elders need to speak to you after the service. Uh, I think you already have to speak. To I think we. There's about four or five things that we need to talk to you about because I follow you on Facebook. And uh, in fact, it's probably good that Pastor Fry doesn't have Facebook uh, because if he followed you on Facebook, yeah. That It'd be, be a pretty bad thing, yeah, yeah, it'd be a bad thing. So, so uh, here's the next big step, and that is, up to this point in time, when these councils would meet, you'd, you'd be in fear of the Romans showing up. Now, the emperor is going to be in attendance. And, of course, the big controversy is... What role did he play? Um, later writers would record for us what sort of a summary of his opening address to the bishops, which was basically, let's get this fixed. <laughs> um, there were certain people that he had relationships with amongst the bishops more than others. Um, some people do theorize that he was the source of the final solution, the use of the homoousion clause. That, that to me, I find to be utterly absurd. There's no evidence whatsoever he had that level of theological sophistication. But the point is, putting those issues aside, uh, here you have a gathering of one-sixth of the bishops of the church from around the world they're there on government money, being fed with government food. And one of the people attending is the emperor of the empire who has a real interest in making sure that this council is successful in coming to a final conclusion. That's a watershed. That is a watershed moment. There's no question about it. And um, the parties and the various views, that's where we'll pick up next time. What were their perspectives? What, what were their understandings? You know two of them, but there is a middle party, as there always are. You get a bunch of people together, you always got the people who want to be in the middle. They don't want to be the extremists. And uh, so we'll look at what the parties were uh, what they said uh, next time, next time around. All right? Okay, let's close the word of prayer. Father, once again, we thank you for the freedom that we've had to consider uh, the history of your working with your people. We ask that we would gain in our wisdom and our understanding, our knowledge of where we are today. 
We would ask that you be with us as we go into worship now. By your spirit, lift up our hearts and minds, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.